0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The economy is sending mixed messages. Corporate earnings have surged and stocks have soared, but the housing market is still weak. Interest rates remain low, but are rising. Many countries' economies are perking up, but a jump in commodities prices is producing inflation. Governments in the United States and Europe are wrestling with huge budget deficits and debt problems. For insight, Knowledge at Wharton spoke with three Wharton professors, Jeremy Siegel, Franklin Allen, and
1: Susan Wachter.
0: Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you for being with us today. I want to start asking the same question uh, of each of you, uh, and we'll just answer in turn. And and that is, if you look at the economy and the financial markets uh, in the U.S. and abroad today... What are sort of the key factors that are driving things, positive and negative, that we need to look at? Uh, Professor Wachter?
2: Job growth is, of course, the key factor uh, in recovery and in the fact that it's a slow recovery. Profits have certainly been strong, and that usually is a precursor to job growth, but job growth is slow. From the negative side, uh, in many uh, recessions, housing is the power driver to recovery, and of course, it's missing in action in this recovery.
0: Okay, and we'll come back to housing in a minute. And Professor Allen, what do you see?
1: So I think one of the key factors is what's happening in China and what's happening in the Middle East. So the inflation numbers came out in China yesterday it's 4.9%. It's a bit below the 5.5%, which was the consensus forecast. So that's good news, but it's still a high number and up on last month. And the big problem there is food price inflation in China is even higher. And the government's got a big decision to make there as to whether to try and calm things down and and cool the overheating economy. And normally that would be something I think that they they think hard about. But at the present time with what's happening in the Middle East, particularly what, what just happened in Egypt and now looks set to play out again in Bahrain and maybe even Iran, I think they have a lot of nervousness because the last time we saw events like that was Tiananmen Square. And they've done a good job so far, I, I hear from my friends in China, of not showing pictures of what happened in the square and so on. And, but I think they, they are aware that this is, this is a, a big issue. And so I think they'll be very careful. And they have to decide, do we let things go on, in, inflation go on, maybe with a lot of food inflation, which is going to hurt many poor people in China, or do we start clamping down and trying to control the overheating?
0: And Professor Siegel, what do you see are there big big factors overhanging today
3: i see I see some f- hopeful signs uh, we're we're getting a little better signals in in the labor market on jobless claims, showing the unemployment rate um, uh, that I think are going to be a precursor to to better job growth uh, certainly, as Franklin mentioned, corporate profits have been doing very well and expected to hit record highs this year, and that's why you've had such a strong recovery in the stock market um, to about 15 percent now below – just 15 percent below its all-time high reached uh, in October of um, 2007. Um, But I also would like to reinforce what Franklin was saying about the food inflation. We're getting a tremendous inflation in commodities. um, and it's not just oil coming back uh but but food at at or exceeding records and even such staples as cotton have just skyrocketed 200%. Now fortunately for the US I think only 9% of our budgets on food but for the poor countries it's much much greater. And so with these uh prices going up uh uh that could be unrest although I I would suggest that uh if uh China wanted to uh, uh, make a good shot at, at solving it. Revaluing the uh, uh, renminbi would be uh, one way of doing that, uh, uh, and, and, and reducing the cost of imported uh, imported goods. But nonetheless, uh, now of course, very few countries developing countries have the same choice there that China does in terms of uh, setting the exchange rate.
0: A perennial hope in the U.S. for China. Uh, Professor Wachter, let's talk a little about the housing market. Uh, it, 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 we, occasionally we see signs of hope, and then we get new data that shows prices are continuing to fall. Uh, what does all this mean? Are we near the bottom or not?
2: Housing at this point is absolutely at the... Um, Uh, At the mercy of the overall economy. And if job growth does pick up, then we'll start seeing some recovery. Right now, we're looking at continuing bouncing on the bottom, even sliding down. Uh, The consensus is prices declining another 5%. Uh, But that's with interest rates maintaining their current level. And indeed, if we do see uh, interest rates going up in the rest of the world, inflation heating up, that may in fact lead us to an increase in interest rates in the U.S. And leaving aside an increase in U.S. interest rates, uh, which of course are hard to predict and I defer to my colleagues on that, uh, financing for the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage costs are going up. And that is now in the cards, in part because of a policy decision uh, that Fannie and Freddie will pull back, start raising their fees. And uh, there is simply um, uh, a in- slight increase in the disparity of 30-year fix over treasuries, 10-year treasuries, which they usually track quite closely. So we've hit 5%. Uh, 5% is, of course, historically very low, Uh, But if we go up another 100 basis points, and we could, that would have significant impact over and above a 5% slide. And then, of course, we've got a potential disequilibrium condition again because uh, right now 25% of home borrowers, mortgage holders, are underwater. If we had 10% plus down, we would have 50% of borrowers underwater which triggers all sorts of potential strategic default issues. So uh, where where we are, it's on the bottom. Um, it's not destabilized. We're not in a vicious cycle, as we were a year ago. But potentially, we're there again. And then, of course, that feeds into the rest of the economy. No growth in construction, either in the residential or construction and jobs. And that slows down the overall recovery, which again feeds back to the housing. But the greatest concern is on the interest rate front.
0: And the interest rates, the higher the rate is, the more it costs to borrow a given amount of money so fewer people can qualify. And that affects prices. That's basically how the process works.
2: Right. And it is also uh, simply those people who are on the sidelines um, who are thinking about buying into the housing market, becoming an owner versus a renter, uh, rationally look forward to what's going to happen to prices. And as the threat of price depreciation increases, you'll find more people sitting on the sidelines. It becomes – it reinforces – expectations are extremely important in this market – and so interest rates have a double impact. It, 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 people are aware, especially investors are aware, as interest rates go up, prices will go down, and that future expectation will pull people back from investing in housing. We see that happening right now.
0: It often seems that the realtors will argue sort of the opposite. They'll say, well, if interest rates are going to rise, you need to race out and buy right now.
2: There is some of that. There is some of that. And there may be, in fact, a a short burst because also Fannie and Freddie's fees are going to increase. And there may be an attempt to get in while we still have these historic low mortgage rates. But for the longer run, it's a negative.
0: Now, there was a really interesting story just the other day saying that There's now some evidence that some of the more stable markets like Seattle are seeing price drops, and and they're suggesting that there is a a kind of a delayed reaction in some of these markets that we really hadn't anticipated. Do you see that?
2: Well, to call Seattle stable is really a misnomer. Uh... All of the West Coast markets are not stable, but nonetheless, uh, Seattle is not a subprime heavy market. And the initial decrease was due to this sharp volatility of flows in and then out of the subprime market, no subprime lending, that entire sector, the entire private uh, non-prime mortgage market. Is out of business, imploded. And that's not Seattle's problem. Seattle's problem is an overhang of inventory relative to job growth. And that's where we're seeing problems. Those are the markets that we're seeing problems in today.
0: Now, you mentioned underwater mortgages, which is people who owe more than their homes are currently worth. And there was a statistic just the other day from Zillow saying that this had gone up to, I think, about 27% from just over 23% in the previous quarter. And you mentioned it could go much higher if uh, if interest rates go up and depress prices. Is this a surprise? Did we expect this much uh, underwater mortgage? Of course. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we, this uh, subprime crisis from the very beginning was a surprise, except for perhaps some. But yes, uh, and of course, Would you it you expected calls it to go
0: down by now? This under the rate of underwater no, mortgages. No, no.
2: This is this is a um, this is a fundamental failure. That's going to be the consequences of which are going to be with us for many, many years. And no, it's absolutely not a surprise. Uh, it's trackable, and the fundamentals uh, are, in fact, what are driving housing markets. And as they always have. On top of the fundamentals, of course, we have this extreme volatility in capital flows into and out of the housing market, which came with the subprime crisis and the pro-cyclical supply of credit, which now we're seeing the other side, a procyclical tightening of credit. Now, that may be, in fact, new news uh, coming out of the uh, White House presidential's report yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, where uh, it's clear that uh, support for Fannie and Freddie will be withdrawn. The cost of funding through Fannie and Freddie will go up. And that is a. Further tightening pro-cyclically of a supply of credit, it will put further downward pressure on housing prices.
0: And, and finally, is there any benefit at all to lower housing prices? I mean, some people must benefit if they're entering sure. the market for the first time. Sure,
2: if, they're, if they are stably uh, at bottom without a potential cycle of anticipating uh, depreciating housing prices. That's is really is there kind of an
0: optimum level of home price appreciation well, that we would find desirable? It's
2: more the question of the dynamics. Clearly, we want inexpensive houses for affordability, but the dynamics are what we are in, what are fearful at the moment. Getting in again to housing price declines that feed expectations of further housing price declines. We have obviously we uh, went way above fundamentals in the period of the bubble. And we could also easily uh, go way under fundamentals. And in fact, we're not there. It's not happening for sure. I don't want to overemphasize this. I predict we'll continue to bounce along a bottom, maybe a sliding bottom, but it's a potential out there.
0: All right. Thank you. Uh, Professor Allen, you mentioned the uh, the new inflation numbers from China. And I wonder if you could add to your comments a moment ago and just sort of explain how this ripples out and affects the rest of us. Obviously, it matters to the Chinese. Why would it matter to people in Europe and the U.S. and elsewhere?
1: Well, China is the second largest economy in the world if you measure across the exchange rates. I think it's actually much bigger than that. If you use purchasing power parity or a number of other ways of measuring economies. For example, it has the largest automobile market now in the world. General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the US. These kinds of things indicate just how important China is to the world economy now. And they have a tremendous effect on many of the global prices. Jeremy was mentioning earlier about commodity prices. And I think Many would agree that the reason commodities are going through the roof is because of Chinese demand and also, of course, Indian and Brazilian. So it's not just them, but they're a major factor in that. If they raise their interest rates more, significantly more, then if their economy slows down, that's going to have a big effect on commodity prices and on many other things, and that will have global effects. If they don't slow down their economy, then prices may continue to go up, and that's also going to affect all these kinds of increases. So the price of oil is already above $100 a barrel. It could go up to where it was at the peak, could go beyond that in the longer run. The basic problem is we've got about 750 million, 800 million people who live in Western-style lifestyles. There's another many billions of people who are aspiring to that. It's going to be very large pressures on commodity prices and so on as we go forward. And this is going to affect all of us and have, have big effects.
0: Now in the past when we've talked, you've, you've expressed concerns about deficits. And I'm wondering where, where we are in that.
1: Is that still a major problem? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? So my view is that deficits are a big problem. I think if you compare what the UK is doing compared to what the U.S. is doing from basically somewhat similar positions, you see two very different views of the world. In the U.S., we have yet to even really address what we need to do, let alone start to plan it in a significant way. And I think this is a major issue. I think one of the interesting factors in in recent weeks has been that the Japanese got downgraded by S&P on their sovereign debt because they don't have a credible deficit reduction plan. For some reason, we're still AAA and S&P hasn't downgraded us. And that may have something to do with the fact that they probably would be regulated if they started being aggressive to the government but we really do have big holes in our public finance in many ways and we need to start thinking about how we're going to address them because if we don't then it's going to get into long-term interest rates as foreign investors and domestic investors start to worry about how are we going to deal with this problem are we going to inflate it away as many countries have done in the past are we going to tax it away how are we going to deal with it that uncertainty It's one of the reasons long-term rates are going up, as Susan just mentioned, they were. And of course, if we see, she was talking about 5%, but if we saw long-term normal kinds of rates, 6, 7, 8, 9, or as we all remember from the 1980s, much higher rates than that, this is going to have very damaging effects on the economy. I won't
0: ask you to take sides in a political fight, but we do have a new budget proposal from President Obama. Do you think it deals with this problem of balancing the budget, or is it a good start?
1: No, I don't think it deals with I don't think either side has yet made a serious proposal because there are four big spending items, defense, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and you have to deal with those problems Nobody is willing to deal with those problems yet. And perhaps when we see us hit the, the debt ceiling in, in a few months' time, we'll see some proposals. I think the Tea Party is going to have to come up with some serious numbers about what they're going to do. And we've got to cut one of those or many of those things. It it seems like everybody in this discussion
0: is talking about cuts, where to cut, and how deep to cut. And nobody is really talking seriously about tax increases. Do you think it's possible to to balance the federal budget eventually without tax increases?
1: I think it's possible. Whether I, th- I think it would be desirable is another thing. I don't think we want to do it that way. So my own view is that we are going to have significant tax increases over the next decade to two decades. Uh, Now,
0: the European debt crisis seems to have kind of fallen off the front pages, and I'm wondering whether that's just a mistake made in newsrooms around the country, or is it really uh, an issue
1: that's behind us? No, it's not behind us. It's still there. Portuguese rates have, have reached new records. I think we're going to see a problem in Portugal in the next two or three months. I think they'll have to go to the EFSF. Uh, Their last bond issue was at 7.3%, which is generally recognized as being unstable, that that they can't keep borrowing at those kinds of rates. I I think there's wide agreement that Greece will default in some way or another. They won't, of course, call it that, but they'll have some kind of restructuring. I think that that's going to cause a lot of problems psychologically in the markets. And then we've still got this problem that, The European governments keep saying that they're going to come up with some solution and a permanent mechanism. But when it comes to the details, they simply can't agree on them. And this has all been exacerbated by the problems with the next president of the ECB. I think many people had thought it would be Axel Weber, who was currently president of the Busenders Bank. But he has now withdrawn effectively from that race And the most obvious and most talented candidate is Mario Draghi. But I think many people have worries about having an Italian at the head of the central bank, given all the problems with Berlusconi and the potential instability if long-term rates go up and the fact that that would have on Italy with about 120% of GDP in debt. The problem is that among the northern Europeans, the Finnish head of their central bank is is not a particularly impressive candidate. The Dutch person, I think, is, but the Dutch had Doisenberg, so they only had half a term, so they maybe can do that. But this is a, a great deal of uncertainty about who's going to head the central bank. This is particularly worrying, I think, for the Germans, who... Are very nervous about this whole process going forward. So I would say we still have a lot, long way to go
0: in Europe. All right. Thank you very much. Now, Professor Siegel, uh, the stock market has done quite well in the last couple of years, as you said earlier. Um, just explain a little more why uh, you're optimistic. I take it you're optimistic about the future.
3: I can still see it go higher. I mean, there's three major factors. That influence stock prices. Uh, first of all, earnings fundamentally, the interest rates uh, at which those earnings get discounted, and and the appetite for risk. Um, and uh, there was very little appetite for risk a couple of years ago <clears throat> when the market hit the low. But uh, I think that that is increasing again. Um, but on the on the the two first two factors uh, looks very, very good. Uh, the all-time high earnings for the S&P 500 on operating earnings were in the 12 months ending in June of 2007. At the peak of the market, at the peak of the economy, uh, was $91.50. Current estimates for operating earnings this year are 95 to 96. Um, and back then uh, the S&P was 1575 now it's just over 1300 so we're much lower in price we have higher earnings and we have lower interest rates even though they are going up um uh, in the uh, you know average of a post war period uh long term rates are still very very low uh so the rate at which we're discounting those uh, earnings are are low right now if you l- look at operating earnings and i will agree operating earnings are uh, uh, more generous than the gap earnings or reported earnings um although that margin has shrunk uh, quite significantly uh but we're we're selling around 13 13 and a half times expected earnings here in 2000 and eleven. If you go back and take uh, historical periods in the post World War II, where interest rates, long term interest rates, have been below like seven percent or eight uh, percent, the average P/E ratio has actually been eighteen or nineteen. So uh, we are below the long run, which is sort of quoted as fifteen, and we're even more below it if if you if you take a wider look. Now those interest rates will probably be increasing, although I don't think. I think another 100, 150 basis points, I do think inflation is heating up. Um, So I think there's risk on bonds, but they'll still be in the low category from a longer uh, term uh, perspective. So in the early stages of a cycle, rising interest rates don't seem to, to restrict the stock market as much as later in the cycle. So we will have rising rates, but I still think we can have uh, a rising uh, stock market. Um, there are threats, of course, around. There always are. Um, and, and these inflation threats that we see in these commodities and oil, which is particularly important in the U.S., we're net exporter of agricultural goods. So we kind of gain on, on, on the export side what we might lose in, in terms of prices. Uh, but we're, of course, a huge importer on oil. So as oil goes up, that increases our bill a lot and, and certainly depresses
0: uh, the U.S. economy. Now one of the concerns I've seen out there is a is sort of a question about what is the nature of these earnings that 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 so much of it seems to be tied to greater efficiency or productivity rather than increased revenues. Is this a, is this a worry or not? Well, in the early stages, uh the last uh, the last
3: 6 or 7 quarters you were absolutely right. It it was uh Wall Street was missing its earning its its revenue estimates but but uh exceeding it's uh, earnings estimates and cost cutting was important. What I think was very interesting, um, uh, we're about 80 to 90% done with the earnings for the fourth quarter, is that this was the first quarter, the fourth quarter, where a, a clear majority of firms actually beat the revenue estimates. Um, and uh it was the biggest margin in over three or four years. Bloomberg has been m- taking a uh, uh a a uh, reading on this particular thing so we're beginning to do that, but it certainly does mean most of the cost estimate uh, cost reductions have been taken um to continue to increase bottom line we're going to have to get increases. In the top line, you're going to have to nominal GDP to go up, real GDP to go up, uh, uh, and have both of uh, both of those rise in terms of revenues uh, of of the corporation. We should also realize, as we've said many times before, that of the S and P 500, 40 to 45 percent of their earnings now come from sales abroad, and um, the strength of the emerging markets um, is something that uh, is uh, you know very positive. Uh, and even I was, uh, uh, even though there are big problems in in Europe, and I agree completely with Franklin that this story is not over. There's going to be a lot more crises and rescheduling of debt that is really a default one way or the other. Um, J.P. Morgan actually sharply raised its estimates of uh, GDP growth in Europe, the Euro area, uh, for 2011 just uh, two days ago. As a result of they were pessimistic, thinking about one and a half percent increase, and they said we're just looking at at our our surveys and uh, the data on the ground, and uh, they boosted it to two and a half to three now that 's still not robust, but it 's certainly better than the you know near quasi recession level that they had before
0: now i don 't want to pick the market apart uh, sector by sector, but I do want to ask about. Internet stocks. There's a little bit of talk about whether there's sort of a boom brewing there. Uh, everybody's very excited about Facebook and well, all it's, of this. It's What's the, going on?
3: Well, it's the IPO, um, not so much the traded ones. Um, you know, well, you know, Facebook uh, is the big one and Twitter. I mean, we all remember Google, um, which was IPO'd um, at around 86 and uh, now is what 600 uh and that was just a few years ago so people are looking forward to that and uh people say i want a piece of it um, um it, it was interesting because um and i saw the movie the social network and uh uh and of course i've heard about uh, uh facebook now uh, the, when the movie came out they said a value of 25 billion now they're talking about 50 billion for Facebook, and I asked someone else, I said, "How are they getting their revenue? They still don 't pop up ads on there, so we were trying to figure it out, so we 're trying to figure out well, how do they get to fifty billion then in terms of the valuation so there 's still a lot of a lot of question over here, but really um, outside of Twitter and Facebook, and maybe a few other potentials in the market themselves we don't really see uh you know anything like the speculation we had in in 1999 and 2000
0: now let's turn to the bond market we don't want to neglect that uh it's 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 done well for people in the in, in for many years what do you see happening it did there did well now? until october
3: right i think that may be the turning point as years later we'll look back at at october 2010 as being my god how did rates get so low uh, i i think you know long term and short term interest rates short term interest rates being mostly a policy instrument of central banks and longer term interest rates are really built on economic growth and inflation. I see both of which are rising, which means long term interest rates are rising. Um, uh, real economic growth um, uh, when you on a purchasing power pay uh, basis. Uh, if you average emerging markets, even with the slower growing developed markets uh is four and a half percent um and inflation is going to go up so it 's hard to see how you 're going to get long term treasuries three and a half four well on the thirty year four and a half to five, but even in that range, and given the huge deficits that are going to continue to mount uh going forward. Uh, certainly, well, they're going to shrink in the next two years because of the recovery. Uh, then they're going to remain at a barely tolerable level until all the baby boomers start, retir- you know, retiring. And then Medicare is just going to blow the lid off of everything unless that gets under control. And it's hard, you know, hard to think about you know, what bond prices might be at that time. So, so
0: rising interest rates uh, push down the prices of existing bonds. The and, they- and, and, and people
3: that have long-term bond funds, and certainly they had done very well for very many years, have to really be careful and beware now of of the the pitfalls of those rising rates. Uh, Does that mean that investors should be reassessing their asset allocation? Well, I think so. I mean, uh, again, those people that, uh, you know, some people tell me I'm in treasury bonds, they can't default. Um, But the trouble is these bond funds are in long-term bonds. And as they get shorter, they're not held to maturity. So they sell them and buy another long-term bond. So yes, you can you know, permanently lose on government bonds in a long-term government bond funds even when no one defaults a penny worth on those bonds. And I think some of those things are just not always well understood. By, by some of the investors in those bond funds,
0: and finally, uh, your latest book talked about the the need for investors to diversify internationally yeah uh, and i 'm wondering where, where how do you see that now? Uh, is that still where the opportunity is is still important well
3: there 's been a bit of a pullback on emerging markets which have done you know, extraordinarily well. I mean here, emerging markets from the peak before the crisis down to that were down seventy percent they 're now within ten or fifteen percent of their all time high um, uh, uh, now, people backed off recently because of the inflation, and it, you know it's hitting all of them—the food prices and all the rest. And I do grant that that is a potential problem, but I think still that that's where you want to be as a you know overweight. Let me say I don't—certainly not all your assets are by any means, but that you should not ignore them. Diversified in the emerging market, I still think is going to be a very rewarding invest, uh, investment for for investors uh, looking forward.
0: All right. A lot to think about, as always, uh, Professor Siegel, Professor Allen, Professor Walker, Thank you very much. For more business news and analysis from
1: Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.